continue our series called Reclaim, Loving, Leaving, and Finding Our Faith, um, in which we're looking at aspects of our faith that need sorting through, trusting that as we wrestle with what we love and what we might need to leave behind, that God is in that process, and that in our seeking we just might find a faith that is even more what we have always loved. So I say I'm excited to be with you, uh, but I don't want to get too carried away because as you heard from Crystal this week, uh, the word we're engaging is sin. (laughs) Um, So I'm also a little bit terrified, which you might be too in the midst of this. Uh, Sin is like kind of a modern swear word. Uh, that we just don't say in public very often. And so we come into this place and we talk about it together. Um, But I think and I pray and I hope that today as we talk, there might be healing in this. It might be helpful for us. Um, And besides that kind of terrified is where all of the best things begin, right? Uh, High school, job dating, parenthood, um, the new season of Game of Thrones, uh, excited but terrified. I'm a little worried for Tyrion, truthfully, and I don't know what I'll do if that goes the wrong way. I'm excited, but I'm a little freaked out. Is an okay place to be. And that trepidation regarding sin comes, of course, from the way that that word has been wielded, the way that it's been used. For many of us in this room, us profound pain and deep wounds, this spiritual harm that's real and powerful. It's been used to shun and to shame, to divide and to diminish, to denigrate the history that we have lived or to not deny the very core and identity of who we are. This word is a lot, (laughs) and because of all of that, it's hard to even say sometimes. This word is why a lot of us took a break from church in a season in our life, and we wondered along the way whether God was for us. And if that's a part of your story, I just want to say as a a pastor person who stands in the stream of Christian tradition that I am so incredibly sorry. There has been real spiritual harm in this word that's deep. And just so you know, I want you to know this, that the harm that you experience is not because of you. It's because of of us, of, of we in the church historically have been bad at this word. We've misused the profound power of this word against each other. And the way that we've used it, I think, breaks God's heart. Because simply put, the way that the church handles sin often simply doesn't look like Jesus. It doesn't reflect that Jesus, the way that Jesus regarded this word. For me, growing up in my religious tradition, I was told that, that sin separates us from God, that God can't even bear to look on us. And that's what I internalized, and that's a lot to carry. But yet, I had this story of this beautiful Jesus that when Jesus shows up, the Jesus who shows us clearly the heart of God, he's not only not separated from us, but he draws near. Those who felt and were told they were most far off, he spent time with them and saw them and heard them and dined with them and went to their house. He loved them and liked them and laughed with them. And the religious leaders of the day whispered this about Jesus behind his back. They said, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's the scorn that they looked at Jesus with. His friendship and his love for those who religion had called far off was the way that Jesus walked through this world. And in that love, he often broke rules and codes and laws intentionally in that loving act to show us that maybe, maybe just maybe, 
in our pursuit of lists and laws that we've missed the heart of the story, that we've missed God's heart. And so those who, who drew near to Jesus in the Jesus community saw a different picture of who God was that, that changed their lives and transformed them and reshaped our understanding of who God is. And we have this beautiful picture recorded in so many places, but I want to read you one of these that Paul describes God's love that we see in Jesus. He says, For I am convinced that we are not separated from God. I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the heart of God is. We're not separated. God loves on us with love that overcomes everything. And so before we begin, I just want you to know that the reason that we're talking about sin today is because of all of that stuff. And I think we, we need to. In this work of love and leaving and finding, I think that there is healing and help for us here. And not just listening to what people tell us this word means or the things that are on the list associated with it, but to try to hear the heart of God. And, and just, by the way, uh, time out from the, like, the sermon part. Um, just so you know, uh, orientation and identity, um, the best of what I have I've studied and experienced and understand, I don't think they're on the sin list. And the places where it shows up are often clumsy translations, or they're highly textual conversations in which they're talking about something that we don't experience between covenantal adult relationships between people. Instead, what we see clearly in Jesus and in God's heart is that every time that the door seems closed to a person or a group, Jesus intentionally opens it wider and wider to make sure that more, that all, are included. And know that though the world tells them that they are far off, that they are worthy of someone sitting around the table with. And, uh, and we don't have time to unpack all of that particular uh, idea behind this, but I want to I just say that to you. But I also want to offer you an opportunity, if this is something that you want to know more about. Um, Monday nights in May coming up, I'm going to be teaching a, a three-week kind of class on scripture and inclusion and the basis for that and unpacking some of these things together. And so if you're interested in that conversation, just save the date, Mondays and um, put it on your calendar. We'll, uh, we'll get that advertised for sure. And so back to our reg- regularly scheduled sermon. Time out. Over. We're back to this part of it. So I said to the list and what you've always heard. Today we're going to be trying to listen to the heart of God, a God who loves you, uh, who is for you, who loves who you are and all you are, who is with you in this world and wants to see you flourish. And I think we're going to try to listen to the the teachings of Jesus, and when we do that, that there's healing and health here. There's life, freedom, and there's reclaiming. Words, true meaning, we can discover importantly um, freedom for ourselves, but also as we go in this world. A call to take seriously this word sin and to be a part of healing and liberating our world from the real problems of sin and the real systemic sins that cause so much hurt and injustice in our world. Because there are things in our world we all agree in our lives and in our systems that are not as they should be. From environmental degradation to domestic violence to racism and bigotry and white supremacy to Wall Street corruption and payday lenders, 
to the myriad petty ways that we disrespect each other every single day. Some of us in our lives have had things happen to us that were simply wrong. They were not small things. And we know that God opposes them. That God is working to heal us and our world of their effects and to liberate our world of the root causes. We all agree that this world is not everything that it should be, and in serious ways. And so we need serious words and serious language to talk about the serious reality of it and our responsibility to be a part of transforming and to be transformed ourselves. And so if there's ever a word in need of reclaiming (laughs) because of all of that, sin, I think, is that word. And I pray that our words today will take us back to the heart with help and not hurt, heal and not harm, and bring life and flourishing to you because that's what God wants for you and for this world. And so, preamble over. (laughs) You ready to do this sin talk? Okay, cool. I'll take that as, like, keep going. Um, we're going to bust right into it. So what is sin? Um, I might answer it, you know, with the breaking God's commandments or disobeying God or some other definition that usually has a list attached to it that we've received via our family or our faith community. I grew up Baptist, and as far as, like, Baptists go, I didn't live in a particularly strict household um, in Baptist circle, and the rest of the world, very strict. But for Baptists, uh, not so much. Uh, but I did have something on my list. I wasn't allowed to watch Golden Girls. That was my parents' thing. Uh, until I visited my grandmother, and then it was just like Golden Girl Wheel of Fortune binge fest at her, at her house, just living in sin with my grandmother there, watching Golden Girls. Uh, The mere adherence uh, to a list doesn't seem quite like the full story, right? Uh, Besides, like, who gets to make up the list? Um, And are golden girls on it? These are important spiritual questions. But simply uh, superimposing uh, sacred rules from a a culture that's not ours, particularly like a 3,000-year-old ancient Near Eastern culture, onto today without any critical conversation or interpretation just doesn't seem to match up. And so today, as I speak to you, I just want you to know, I'm going to confess to you that I am, I'm breaking the explicit commands of the Bible as I speak to you. Uh, I am wearing mixed fabric. I trimmed my sideburns today. Um, I'm not wearing tassels on my garments. Uh, and after church, I plan to have a shrimp taco if all goes well. And all of those things were forbidden in some of the scripture passages. And I'm a pastor. I do those things. It's shocking. I know. I break the rules. And so if it's not the list, then something bigger must be here in this conversation. And besides, as we see, Jesus wasn't a fan of the list and thought that they just might be a symptom of a larger problem. And so I've got a definition that I think, I think better reflects what we see in the whole of our scripture library and in the heart of God and in the way of Jesus that we see reflected there, that better reflects the depth and the importance of this word, sin. So it comes from the theologian uh, Cornelius Plantinga, and uh, in his book about sin called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a Brevery of Sin, exciting reading there. And here's what he says. He says, sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. Shalom is the word that we talk about here sometimes. It's a beautiful word. As I've said before, it's the Hebrew word for peace, uh, but it's more than the absence of conflict. It's more than just vegging out with Netflix, binging on Golden Girls, that kind of peace that comes with that. Shalom means peace. It means wholeness, health, flourishing, universal, holistic flourishing, I think is a way to describe what God talks about with this word, shalom. 
Now, shalom is the harmony and the destiny that God intends for this world. Shalom is peace with yourself, with your neighbor, with creation, and peace with your God, your creator. God wants you in all things to flourish in shalom. And Jesus himself kind of describes a word that's close to it. He says, I've come that you might have life, that they might have life, and have it abundantly. Shalom is how God wants things to be, abundant, alive, and flourishing. And so sin, then, is the disturbance of that. The disturbance, then things are not as they should be. And disturbance are real in the ways that we and our systems break and interfere with that holistic flourishing and the abundant life of all. Sin is the culpable part of that, the part that we're responsible for and own for ourselves. And culpable way is any way that you and I contribute or participate or acquiesce the disturbance of shalom that we see all around us in our worlds, in our homes, in our relationships, in our workplaces, our communities, in our world. God desires shalom in our world for all people and for all creation, universal flourishing and right relation. That's what the Spirit of God is at work for around us and in us and for us and between us. Shalom. And sin is anything that we do to disrupt or work against that peace and harmony and holistic flourishing that God desires for our world. And for me, that definition is helpful. It reflects the whole of the scriptural story. But it also deepens my understanding of the importance, the critical importance of that word sin. If it were just about breaking a list, then our path forward would be to just apologize and ask forgiveness and move on and try to do better by the list. But this understanding that we have in some way by our error culpably disturbed shalom demands a deeper response. When you place sin not on a list, but in this larger context of the good and the peace that we all want for this world, that God is at work for in the world, then the importance of the word, the centrality to our understanding of ourselves in the world makes so much more sense. Because I am culpable for disturbing shalom in our world, for working against the flourishing of our world. We all are. We all fall short. And I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want that to be a part of my life. It's a big deal. It's kind of like the deal in this. I want my neighbor to flourish. I want my kids to flourish. I want my spouse to flourish. I want myself to flourish. I want my life and my relationships and the impact I have on this world to cultivate shalom and not to disturb it. And where I have fallen short, I need divine grace and forgiveness. But I also need that divine grace to grow and to change. I want to make it right with my neighbor, to heal the harm, to seek justice, and to be liberated from the patterns and the systems that influence me in the first place. I want to be transformed, to be more who I was truly created to be in fullness and flourishing and abundance. See, God isn't working against sin because God is against us. God is at work against sin because God is for us, for shalom for all people. God is for you and for your flourishing. And so when God talks to us about this, to God, this word sin or sinner is not a part of your identity. 
you have an identity that's deeper than that. And so in, in the Gospels, that's why Jesus seems totally unconcerned with the reputation of his dinner companions that he sits with. He looked past the labels, and he saw their true identity, just as God sees yours, that you are a beloved child of God, created beautifully and colorfully of sacred worth and profound purpose. That is who you are and the truth and the depth of your spirit. But still, in any honest telling of our own stories— we all fall short of that. We miss the mark. We disrupt the shalom that God intends for all things. We all sin and participate in that and harm each other in our world. And there's guilt in that. There's responsibility for that. But there's not shame in that. Guilt says, I messed up. Shame says, I am a mess up. And God says, no, 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 no. You are a beloved child of God. And we all fall short and miss the mark. But sin for us is not the last word. The story of our lives is not other. God is at work in us and through us. We are loved and we are being restored and redeemed and reconciled and renewed in Christ. We are returning anew to who we truly are, and returning again to our call to cultivate shalom in the world and to be peacemakers as we go. God doesn't want you to be something that you're not. God wants you to be who you are in full, and the more you know about who you are, the more you know what to do and how you are specifically called to cultivate peace in our world with others and with ourselves. So that's the message that God speaks to us. And we hear it, and we begin to see it all throughout Scripture. And so I want to just point to one particular place. Um, it's, a, it's one you may have seen on, like, pithy Pinterest posters or, like, on someone's bumper sticker. It's from Jeremiah 29, 11, but I changed the translation back to that Hebrew word, shalom, that we translate. And so this is God speaking to a people in exile that God is redeeming and restoring. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your shalom for your flourishing and not for your harm, to give you a future and a hope. That's God's heart. That's what God is at work for, and that's what we are called to be a part of. So we see the, we see the heart of God through this. But what do we see when Jesus, who shows us this in a very human way, what do we see when Jesus shows up? So in Jesus' day, the religious leaders of his time had quite a long list of sins. They had identified 613 commands and laws of God in their collection of Hebrew Scripture. They wanted all people to follow, and they even added a few extra commands uh, outside of what they found, um, just so that for the important commands, you couldn't even get close enough to them to mess up. It's like me when I have to wake up early in the morning, and I just set like seven alarms, stretching way back in time, thinking that it's going to help me, and it doesn't work, and it didn't really for them either. <laughs> and so much of Jesus' message, these leaders, with their 613 laws on their list, was simple. He said, stop. <laughs> you are hurting people, and you've completely missed the heart of God. So he said this in, in places like Luke 11.46. He says, Woe to you lawyers. And he's not just talking about lawyers here. Um, this was the people who, who were in charge of interpreting and distributing the laws of their day. He said, Woe to you, for you load people up with burdens hard to bear, and you yourself do not lift a finger to ease them. You've weighed people down with these things. And he said he describes his way. He says, Come to me. All 
you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That word yoke here was, was kind of a, a, a metaphor for a rabbi's teachings, for their instructions for their students. And so he says, my yoke that I want to give you, my teaching and my instruction, take it upon you, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You'll find that flourishing. For my yoke, my teaching, and my way is easy, and my burden is light. And we look at that and we're like, easy, I will take easy. <laughs> I like easy. But it doesn't mean a piece of cake in this. Uh, in Greek, it means that this teaching fits you well, that it's made for you, for your growth and your life. It fits you for who you truly are. And this, this fit and what made Jesus' teaching so extraordinary was like nothing they had ever heard in their time. Jesus' way, it was challenging, yes, but it, it fit. It seemed right and true, like deeply, in a way that, that cut through all the past and all the baggage and the old context and contingencies, all the old rules and regulations, and went right to the heart of something it seemed like they knew about who God really is and the essence of what God is really doing to the God who is working shalom in our world and to the depth of who we are. It fit in this, like, transcendent way. And so when Jesus is making his list of rules, his, his yoke and his teaching, as we said a few weeks ago, instead of 613 laws, Jesus laid out two for us, which if you're doing the math is less than 613 rules. And so here's what Jesus says in his list, in the heart of this whole story. He says, here's the great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he just keeps going. And he says, in the second part of that commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others as you yourself are loved. And then he says something remarkable. He says, in, in verse 40, the next verse, he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets, which is shorthand for him basically saying the whole of Scripture and all of those 613 rules, all of them hang on depend on, are framed by, are, are deconstructed and reconstructed by these commandments. Love God and love people as you yourself are loved. This whole thing, everything that it hangs on. It's not rules about eating shellfish tacos or about being a part of a specific tribe, but the question of what this is bringing to us. Are we flourishing? Are we learning and growing in the love of God and loving others as ourselves? Are we loving God and doing good, not harm, in our world? Are we cultivating shalom? This is the heart of it all, and it is the most fitting, fitting thing. And this yoke is deep. It is not easy. <laughs> if you've ever tried to love someone in like a real way, it's really, really hard sometimes. You have to seek peace sometimes that's bigger than yourself. You have to be vulnerable to another person in a way that's scary. You have to care about someone. It's a lot. It's a lot to love someone. It's way easier just to follow a list than to try to love. But if God desires shalom, then the heart of seeking shalom and doing right by each other begins here. With love of God and love of neighbor as we ourselves are loved. That's how we flourish. 
and to disturb that shalom, to break that, to sin, and somehow to harm our neighbor, to harm ourselves, and in some way through that to harm our relationship with our God. And we look out at our world through that lens of flourishing and harm. We see harm happening around us, and now we have the words to describe it. We see harm at the border. We see harm sometimes in our cities or in our own communities. We see them in our systems of supremacy. We see them in our churches as they sometimes do harm. We see them in our world, and we look at our own lives, and I look at my life, and I see that same harmful breaking of relationship. I'm culpable in that. And God calls us, and I want to be different, to be a person, and to be part of a people who cultivate flourishing. And so when we bumped up against sin, against this culpable disturbance of shalom, what do we do in that? What do each of us, all of us, who fall short do in response? And so here's a word for you. Repent. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. Here's another word that we have to reclaim and unpack, right? This is the dude with the bullhorn word that you scream out at people as they walk by on the sidewalk. And so let's, okay, take that word. I'm going to pull that off the screen. Let's go with the Hebrew word for this. That'll make it a little bit more palatable for us. The Hebrew word is teshuva, which means to return, to return to the path, to repent, to turn from the direction that we're headed and to come back to the path we were built for, built the path of who God has built us to be as beloved children of God. And the message of this story and of Christ and the grace that Jesus offers us is that you can return no matter what. That the door is open for you. And we return to our path. We also return to our call to be people who cultivate shalom in our world, who work for justice and liberation and empowerment. That, so that shalom can flourish, so that all people can flourish. As we seek to do good and not harm. As we seek to heal and restore the places where we hurt and have hurt each other and damaged shalom. And Jesus says that when we do this, this is when we're living into our identity. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, those who go in the world and make shalom, <laughs> cultivate it. They will be called children of God, that we're most living into our identity as children of God when we're cultivating shalom. And so returning to that, to shuva, means walking away from things that need to be walked away from. Making things right that need to be made right. And sometimes abundantly and generously making them right. And though it may seem impossible sometimes that some things are just irreparable, they're insurmountable for us, these obstacles, this bondage, that we seem like we have, like a stone has been rolled in front that can never be rolled away. The message and the wonder of this story is that they are not. That there is a God who can roll away stones and that nothing is impossible with a God who brings new life out of dry bones. So the door is always open. The path is always present. The way that leads to life is always there for us to find peace with God with our neighbor, with ourselves. The invitation is there for us to return as well as the beautiful declaration that nothing can separate us from the love of God.
because in our returning, we're returning to what's always been there, to who we are, to our flourishing. We are returning home. That's what teshuva means. And when we return, we find peace with God and shalom with God that changes everything. For those places that we've sinned, for those places that we've been harmed by sin, we find peace and healing and restoration and transformation. We find liberation and life and empowerment and creativity and goodness and newness and depth. We find flourishing and abundant life. We find shalom and we find love. In a world that is not as it should be, God's love for you that sits at the heart of everything is exactly as it should be and even more. And our life and our shalom and our work for it begin in that place. So I said that Jesus' list was two commands, which is less than 613. But Jesus goes even further. And at the end of his time with his disciples, he brought all of it together into just one commandment to make it really easy for people to put it on their bumper stickers, on their camels, and to go and live this life. And so he brings all that stuff down together into one. And this is what he told his friends. He said, I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. And that, friends, is the list that sits at the heart of God and the heart of the good news of God. That's the whole list. You are loved. Now, love each other and this whole world as you've been loved. That is the list. That is the way of life that is the opposite of sin. That is the way of life that seeks shalom. It's the heart of God and the call on our lives. You are loved. So love as you've been loved. That's the welcome. That's the invitation. That's the peace that sits at the heart of our story. May we be people who return to that and live in such a way that others can find their way home as well. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for your incredible story, for your love for us that transforms everything, that brings us shalom and peace and restoration and transformation, that brings us life. God, this word, sin, has been one that's been hard for us because of the way that we've heard it, the way we've understood it. God, but something has never quite sat right because it didn't match who we see in you. And so thank you for this opportunity to reclaim it and to hear the, the truth at the heart of this. God, that we are beloved children of God, but that we fall short of living out that love. God, but through your grace, your forgiveness, your liberation, your way of life that leads us from exile back home, we and begin to be people who participate, create, cultivate your shalom in our relationships and in our lives, that we flourish and we help those around us too. 
God, it seems impossible, but nothing is impossible for you. For we know the plans that you have for us, not for our harm, but for our shalom. Help us hope in that, find our life in that, at the center of you. We pray this in your name. Amen.